So this is episode two, season one of the Lessons with Leaders podcast. I am Jake Allen, your host. We have a very special guest with us today, Kelly Vitell, the CEO of Strategic Philanthropy. Happy to have, likewise, a fellow FSU Knoll on the show today. We're going to get into her mindset, what she has done to get herself from uh, more of a corporate role into being the CEO of her own company. So not to steal her thunder, I'm turning it over to her. Kelly, thank you for being on. Happy to have you as a way to get started. As a way to get started. Why don't you just uh, tell, you know, myself and our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening in today. Um, so as you said, Kelly Alvarez Zitali, uh, president and founder of Strategic Philanthropy. Uh, we've been around since 2011. And just in short, Strategic Philanthropy is a community relations um, agency. So we get hired by companies, foundations, or government agencies to what we say is help give away their money to nonprofits in a strategic way that really aligns with their business goals and objectives, and also helping these companies or organizations um, set up employee volunteer programs so that their employees can ultimately give back and have a greater purpose at their job. So that's in short what we do. Um, prior to that, uh, prior to being in, you know, starting my own company, I was actually, you know, went to FSC for undergrad and, and my master's, so double nulls here. So you either love me or hate me, depending on where you lie in the state. And uh, really involved in high school, really involved in college. I uh, got my master's in integrated marketing communication. And I was I was set to go and work for a Fortune 500 company. I was going to go work in their marketing department. I was going to Dallas. I was going to Boston. I was not going to stay in Florida. And um, in doing so, and kind of doing the interview process, I had a mentor who said, hey, you really should go talk to this really good friend of mine just to get some, you know, some coaching on, on life post-college. And uh, that individual, her name was Allison Yu, and she was a superstar, young 20-something-year-old up-and-comer, you know, SVP at the American Heart Association. And so in a conversation with her, I got, um, you know, uh, I got pretty much, I started interviewing with her, which wasn't a formal interview, right. um, to kind of go and work at American Heart Association and be a development director. And at that time, Heart Association was, um, they were in the midst of doing cause marketing, the meaning that they wanted to partner with a, uh, you know, a nonprofit with, or a business would want to partner with a nonprofit that really aligned with a cause that people, that resonated with a cause. You know, some people might remember the Yo Play yogurt. Right. They had like those pink lids. And so if you bought yogurt, that particular yogurt, certain percentage would go to, uh, would go to the, the nonprofit. So, um, I took a job doing that because I was, it felt like I could do, it felt very corporate, but it also felt like I was doing good in the community. So that's how I ended it, uh, ended up there. And I did that job for five years. And what I noticed in that role was, you know, I worked with a lot of moms. I, mm-hmm. I wore, you know, I was single. I was 20 something years old and I was looking at these ladies who were, you know, whatever in their late twenties or early thirties or early forties. Um, and they were commuting an hour to get to work. They had two or three kids. They would leave work at, you know, five, six o'clock, drive an hour home. If they wanted to be with their kids, they, um, you know, they had to take a personal day off of their vacation and you only got two weeks of vacation right. anyway. So it was like terrible. And I just realized. God forbid anybody is sick and you're taking PTO for symphonies, right? Good Lord. It's like those are valuable days, right? Of course. And I just remember thinking, um, you know, like, gosh, there's, there's got to be a better way for women to try to do it all, per se, you know, to like be able to have a job that they love and to be able to like be a parent if they choose to be a parent and, and, and be able to raise responsible, wonderful children who will ultimately give back to society. Um, 
I also noticed that in the corporate job that I could get my job done in like four hours, but I have to sit there for eight. Right. And I just didn't understand that mentality. I didn't understand that if I worked harder and got my work done, I wasn't rewarded for it. It wasn't like I could leave early. Mm-hmm. I just had to sit there and do nothing, you know? And so it didn't really incentivize me. And so there really was, um, those were two initial thoughts that I had that was like, hey, there's got to be a better way. I can't see myself doing this for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, so those are the two initial thoughts that ultimately got me thinking uh, there has to be a, a better way. And so um, I'm not sure if there's another probing question, but I can no, get into no, the details no. as to how I got there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you hit on a lot of things that, that I think we are starting to see more and more in the workforce, um, not only for people who go off and like you did, you didn't have a solution, so you found a solution. We're going to talk about that. But for people, too, who they need that flexibility, they now realize that they can get the job done in four hours rather than eight, um, rather than nine. So why not have that five hours or four hours back in the day where they can go do their personal life? Um, obviously, being a mother, um, that is a job within itself. And a lot of people who do not have the luxury of being a stay-at-home mom, they're battling, they're handling two jobs, they're trying to rush home and make dinner. And there's not a really, the way a lot of people are working today, there's not a thing as a work-life balance, it's more of a work-life harmony. And some jobs haven't tapped into that. They don't give those hours. They don't give that flexibility. So you're instead cramming everything in. But you kind of realize that at an earlier stage and before, candidly, a lot of the economy of the workforce did, where it's now a big item, but you know, 10 years ago when you made your company, it wasn't. Um, so kind of want to go through the process. Okay, here's an issue. I don't want to be corporate. But what do I do now? You know, you found the issue, but talk to me kind of about the process of finding the solution which was you know, being strategic philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. So in that role, you know, I always joke that there's so many careers that when you're in college, nobody talks to you about. Mm-hmm. So nobody, I had never even heard of the word community relations or corporate philanthropy. I did not even know that that existed in the corporate arena. And for those of you not familiar with that space, there are a lot of companies who are trying to do good or they, you know, they partner, they give their money away to community groups or community outreach efforts or various nonprofits. And so when I was at Heart Association and I was a development director, I would work with these individuals. These were the base of the company right. who were out and plugged into the community. And they were, you know, they were trying to do good in their communities and, and you know, serve their business needs as well. So that's how, that was my first introduction. And I knew that my next step was going to be, I wanted to be a community relations professional. What I quickly found out is that it is a job that nobody leaves. Nobody retires. I mean, it takes forever for one of those positions to open up. And so I just thought, okay, I'm going to work my tail in off and I'm going to just wait my turn. I'm going to, you know, work my network and do this. And that's just, that just didn't happen. Right. There, these positions, you know, in, at least in Fort Lauderdale and South Florida, there's not a lot of Fortune 500 companies. There's just a handful. And they, there might be 10 companies in Fort Lauderdale that actually have a dedicated right. corporate philanthropy department. On, here. on that real quick, and, we, and uh, just out of curiosity, I know there's there's definitely a threshold for outsourcing, insourcing, different top jobs, different roles really based on the size of the company. Where do you see um, companies doing this, having like a CPO, uh, you know, chief uh, philanthropy officer internally versus where, you know, you're coming in and, and you're doing outsource? Is that like a, a revenue size for the company? Is that just kind of like locations? Where, where yeah. is that internal, external? No, no, no. That's a great question. So your Fortune 500 companies, these are, these are household names, right? This is your, if you're in Florida, this is FPL, this is, Royal Caribbean, this is Ryder, this is EPS, 
um, that says, you know, JM Family, uh, Bank of America, et cetera. So they're going to have either a small team or a department um, or, you know, or one individual that's kind of handling this. Our specialty at in strategic philanthropy is saying, look, those big players, most likely they're not going to hire our company because they have a team of people doing this already. We might come on board for like a special project. Where our sweet spot is, is these small to medium-sized companies. And when I say small to medium-sized, I'm not talking like mom and pop shop. I'm talking about companies with $50 million to $250 million in revenue who currently give, but there's no, they can't justify the, the cost of having a full-time person. Mm -hmm. And they're just giving because somebody asked them to give and there's, there's no real strategy to it. So in South Florida, there's so many right. very wealthy, very prosperous, very giving companies. Our job is to kind of come in and be their community relations arm or their wing or the department for a fraction of the cost of hiring a full-time person. Awesome. And, and so, that, that, yeah. yeah, no, no, of course. And I love that. And I think a lot of people, the one thing that, that I've seen is that you can actually use the philanthropy donations and charitable work as a way to get into certain markets. So you obviously talk about companies expanding. Oh, I'm going to open up a branch in Fort Lauderdale, South Florida. How do we break into this market? Um, the do well, the do good, do well kind of concept is really like your mission statement mantra. How do you become strategic with your philanthropy? Obviously it's a donation, but it is a large one. You want to probably see some type of an ROI. How do you become strategic and then how do you kind of calculate, determine the success of that strategy? Yeah. So um, let me circle back to, to okay. uh, and finish the thought of okay. how I ultimately got to, the, right. to that point. Yeah, and yeah. then I'll, 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 okay. I'll go into our tagline a little bit more. So, you know, because nobody kind of retires from this role, mm -hmm. um, my husband at the time was working for a bank and they didn't have a community relations person. And because he was so involved, he would always, you know, a lot of nonprofits would come to him and say, hey, run this up for pipeline, see if we can get some sponsorship dollars. And one random Saturday as we're making our bed, he said, you should do this. I'm like, do what? And he said, you should, you know, you should start a company and let companies hire you to handle community relations and handle all their sponsorship efforts. And I was like, that is the dumbest idea known to me. Who could have possibly Same hired me later. for that? And yeah, and I literally walked out the room. And so, you know, I came back to him a week later and said, okay, I'm interested. You know, what would this take? And he ultimately said, you know, I'll help you structure the finances and all that kind of stuff. And you got to do the work. And I bought a book called How to Start a Business <laughs> on Amazon.com. Right. And I would go to coffee shops and just like do the exercises and be like, I didn't get, you know, I didn't go to business school, didn't get my MBA. So, I mean, despite my family having a small business, mm -hmm. I didn't even work for the small business. Right. So, I mean, I was from like ground zero. So, you know, I always tell people, you don't have to have the schooling, you don't have to have the financing behind it. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to do it. You can just literally buy a book and there's so many free resources and trainings out there that you can teach yourself how to do this. So that's ultimately how I got from corporate America and started the company and, and, and built it from scratch. Yeah, and so. and I want to, want to dive into that part real quick is when it, we'll talk more strategy where you're doing the business side, but we're sure. talking like the, the ground zero, the startup, the you know, self-taught, um, a lot of people who, you know, maybe you're in a classroom, maybe you have a mentor, maybe you're doing a paid coaching program, you have more skin in the game because you're financially invested, you have a, uh, someone kind of accountability partner. When you're doing that yourself, it sounds like you just kind of rolled out and you were doing a lot of self-knowledge. Like, how did you kind of 
get yourself off the ground? What was the accountability that you held yourself to? Was it like, you know, by three months, I want to have X done and six months, I want to have this done. Like, how were you kind of holding yourself accountable through that process to learn how to do it and then to actually do it? Yeah, that's a great point. So I always say, and I'm very honest about this up front. Um, when I started my company, I was married. And so I had a safety net. I knew that if the company, you know, I, I knew that it was probably going to take a year to get, you know, everything up and running and getting your first client. And this is such a new market, some nuance that people are like, wait, what do you do? PR and marketing? Like, nope, do community relations, do corporate philanthropy consulting. So that messaging, a lot of people had never heard of. So I knew that it was going to probably take me a year. And, but I also knew that I wasn't going to go hungry. Right. Like my husband had a job and we were going to be able to eat dinner. So yes. like that within itself is um, a safety net that, you know, I've had very, very good friends, such friends who have started companies and they had to hunt mm -hmm. from day one. Right. If they wanted to get fed, they needed to bring in business. Right. And so there's a different mentality. I had a little bit of grace period because I always say I had a safety net. You know, for some people that might be a partner, for some people they might go live with their family for a little bit to kind of mm -hmm. get it up and running. But in my head, I had ultimately given me myself a year. And by, I think by the time I launched January 2nd of you know, 2012, right. opened up a computer and then by, I think August or September, I had built everything and I had pitched my first client and I had landed them. So okay. um, made a little bit of money that right. year. Uh, not anything to be able to like live off of for sure. Uh, so again, grateful for you know having having a partner that was supportive in that in that realm. But again, if they say like if you build it, it'll come. Right. And ten years later, it's like okay, that's a pretty sweet gig. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think the safety net. You know, I think in any kind of business situation you're in, you want to you want to know your value and you don't want to be desperate. And I think that safety net provides you that, uh, you know, ability provides you that opportunity to kind of pick and choose and still be strategic with what you're doing without just having your backup against the wall so much that you're just trying to get anything you get your hands on. It's right. Safe. And I was at, that, that's a great point. I was actually able to be very selective in the types of clients that I wanted to make sure that it was a good fit for me and a good fit for them because I didn't have to take the first person who bit, you know, just to get income in the door, you know? Right. Um, so that I was very fortunate in, in that regard as well. No, absolutely. I think there's also still kind of, you know, playing devil av devil's advocate. There's a counterpoint of that where some people who, you know, maybe they come from a really wealthy family or, or, or their safety net is, uh, it can kind of be a crutch where uh, they don't really have to do it because they have this safety net. Their plan B is really, you know, it's not that bad. How did you balance, you know, having a strong safety net, but also still being full speed ahead? Um, was that just really through your vision, your kind of your purpose and fuel to the fire? Or like, you kind of walk me through like yeah. the balance of both where, you know, you're, you got the safety net, but you still don't want to sleep in because you got stuff you got to get going on. Yeah, and so uh, part of it is personality. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in doing, as people here on the podcast have heard of Gallup Strength Finders. And so it's a test that you take on your person, uh, personality and it tells you what your natural five strengths are. Okay. Not to say that you've mastered those, but that's kind of right. where you get your energy from. And so one of mine is I'm a really high achiever. Okay. I like to do it. I like task lists. I want to get things done. So part of that is just drive. And again, I came from, you know, I'm a first-generation American. Parents, uh, my grandparents, you know, the story that everybody here has, like, heard in South Florida, like, my grandparents left Cuba, lost everything. My parents came when they were, like, six and nine years old, and so they had to rebuild everything. And one of those grandparents um, 
just by being a janitor at a sugar mill in Belgley, which is like the tiniest town in, right. you know, like America, um, started, was able to start selling launches. And so he did that door to door and then he was able to make money. And then all of a sudden he was able to open up a small little store and then he grew that store and, and it became a really successful store. And so in the back of my head, I always kept thinking, okay, if my grandparents who left their like native country did not speak English, literally did not speak English for like the day they died, if they can figure this out and be successful and start up like and start up a great company, then failure is not an option. Right. And so I, as a first generation, you know, American kind of felt that drive like I I had to succeed okay. because failure was not was not an option. And I also had kind of tasted the other side. Right. And I knew what like, okay, if I didn't work hard, if I didn't hustle, if I didn't you know, my, my husband wasn't going to just like allow me to right. sit on the couch. So it was like, Hey, if you don't get this up and running, like I'm going to have to get a job. So I tasted what the other side was. I was not interested um, in going in house. I wasn't interested in that again. Um, and to this day, it still drives me. It's, you know, when people are like, well, you know, what would it take to, to bring you in house? It's like, I'm not for sale. I love, I love the flexibility. I love managing my own destiny. Hey, we want to, you know, we want to do something big on the house or take a vacation, take a trip, and maybe we can't afford it. No worries. I'll get another client or two. Like, I can always throw the business mm-hmm. or I can scale it back if I need to. So um, that I'm not willing to give up. And so I'm willing to have before that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, one, relating it back to your grandparents and also two, to at that time, I don't think you, you were married but didn't have any children at that time, right? I did not have children at that time, correct. But I'm so somewhat in the in the picture a little bit where they you may may not may not have been actually born yet, but you're definitely I got a family at some point, so let me let me on. So, you know, making it bigger than just yourself and then also to, you know, back up against the wall knowing what the alternative option was and trying to trying to fight against that, stay away from it. Um Yeah. And no, I I tell people all the time that, you know, if you choose to have children, you know, what, what society asks of parents, of mothers, of fathers, or whatever, it's like Hey, you need to be involved in your kid's life and you need to have dinner with them. They need to be involved. They need to do, like there's all these aspects and you're like, well, wait a second. I'm working eight to 10 hours a day. Like that's right. not possible. Either I'm doing it or somebody else is raising my kids or they're in Africa. And again, that's what most Americans have to do because they don't have the option. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I was involved in my kid's life as much as I wanted to be, you know, if I, I wanted to do pick up, drop off. If I wanted to be a room mom, if I wanted to go on a field trip, I did not want to ask permission right. to be part of to be a part of my kid's life. And I, again, I didn't have a kid at that point, but I knew right. that one day we probably would. Too. Yeah, no, I mean making that sacrifice for the uh, for the eventual freedom. You know, everything's a give and take. Uh, you got to be willing to give to take, and and that uh, sounds like you did. Um, so obviously, more than one client uh, ten years later. But want to talk a little bit about that first client? What that looked like? you're loud. I don't know the, the, the contraction. Yeah. 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 So, you know, one of the ways that I was able to really get a client and, and it's still true to this day is, um, I really value my reputation. Okay. And so when I have, when, you know, when I was at Heart Association and even prior to, I have, you know, my reputation to me is everything. My mom always used to say, if you don't have a dime to your name, but you have your reputation, like you. you can figure it out type of thing. And so I was a big believer that, you know, even though I had a job, I was still really involved in our community and I served on several committees, several boards. And I knew that if I did my job as a volunteer, 
you know, the people that were sitting around that board were going to be like, oh, like Kelly really has her act together. In addition to having a full-time job, she's able to like handle all this community involvement and always follow through on what she said she's going to do. And so because of that, I was able in the beginning, I created a, what we call a center of influence list. I had 50 people on there that I knew that either could hire me or could recommend me to somebody who could hire me. And so I met, I put that list together and I met with every single one of those people to tell them about what I was doing in hopes that they would say, Hey, you know what? You should talk to this company or, Hey, you know what? You should, um, you know, we might want to bring you in to talk to your, our CEO about your services. And my first client I'm sitting at, you know, I go to an event for a charity function. I'm sitting there at a table with my husband. They're honoring uh, a gentleman and um, a very good friend of mine, older guy, you know, in his 60s, a lawyer, been involved in the community uh, for quite some time, thinks to himself and is brilliant enough to think like, hey, this guy who's being honored, I think his company could use okay. strategic philanthropy service. Okay. And he goes, so Kelly, the table's like dead silence. He's like, so Kelly, tell me about your new company. What are you doing? And so I kind of get to do this pitch. Right. And the honoree is sitting at the table and he goes, hey, I'm, I'm interested. Will you send me some information and I'll... I'll, fo- I'll have my team follow up with you next week. And I was like, there's no way that this random guy is going to like allow me, the CEO is going to, I'm going to email him and he's going to hire me. And sure enough, I followed That's up with happened. him a few days later. He brought me in to meet with his team. His team said, we're interested, build me, you know, make me a proposal. And they signed, they signed on board. And then like two weeks later, I happened to have gotten another client that I had right. been trying to, um, right. you know, that had been dripping on and cultivating and so forth. So I was able to land two clients, you know, in, September of that first year. Okay. Um, and that's, that's how I got it. I got it based on because I had a good reputation because I did what I said I was going to do and always followed up and, you know, was a good community member and so forth. Mm-hmm. People were willing to open up doors or, you know, or make pretend, you know, uh, open up doors or, or, or give me situations where well, it allowed me to kind of do a pitch yeah. in front of people who might hire me. No, no doubt about it. I think the, uh, for those who do not know something to definitely look up is the five degrees of separation. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that concept, but you know, knowing one person may know another person who may know another person who gets you at the table to speak to the person who you need to be speaking with. So definitely leveraging that natural, um, network is, is very important. And then picking up, you know, it's funny how it goes, it's, you know, uh, business is cyclical. You don't have, uh, any kind of clients for a little bit. And then you get your first two, um, one after another. Um, want to get kind of back into the business of it, the strategic, you know, very fitting name, strategic philanthropy, um, how that actually works. Like and one, one of the questions I have too, is how do you help a company align their goals and their, you know, mission statement with a particular philanthropy? Do you ever have situations where maybe the C-suite, one of their individuals, their, their goals and everything may not align necessarily with the company? You know, how do you pick and choose whether or not to do it for a person, do it for a corporation, how to break into a market? Like, give me the, what is the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So when we get hired by a company, the first thing that we do is we will do a financial analysis. We'll kind of go in and say, open up your books to every um, nonprofit, 501c3 membership. Give me all of anything that you've given to like a professional association or a, a charity, pull that. And our team does a deep dive because we want to know like, where have them, where have people given to, where are they not? Because we need a benchmark, right? Um, because if a company has been giving to homework groups for, you know, 20 years and all of a sudden we come in and we're like, we stop giving to homework groups, like, oh, you guys are like awful people, right, you know? Right. So we kind of want to get a benchmark as to like, 
what what type of giving they've done in the past. Um, the second is, you know, people often ask, hey, well, do you just come in here and you have like your favorite 10 nonprofits and that's what you tell these, these companies to do? And I'm like, absolutely not. Um, what we do it, what we do is we work with the CEO. We put together a leadership team um, that has a very good understanding of what the company's strategic plan is, okay. what their goals and objectives are. And we put those people in a room, you know, four times uh, that, you know, I moderate and I facilitate those, those meetings. And we kind of, I mean, we start with a simple SWOT analysis okay. and say, like, where can philanthropy help bridge the gap on what it is that you're trying to do? Okay. And once we're able to see those those items, then we can say, all right, this is how this is going to align. And we can either build out a, you know, a sponsorship effort to be like, okay, we're going to give X amount of money. We're going to sponsor the, you know, this amount of nonprofits or give away this amount of money in the community. From that SWOT analysis, we might say, hey, we see that the company's really siloed. And, you know, volunteerism needs to be a big part of it. Hey, we see that we want to open up, you know, we really want to expand into the Miami market or we want to expand into the Orlando market. How do we get plugged in? So, again, we're using that fund analysis to find gaps where we can use philanthropy as a tool okay. to help market the company and, and ultimately achieve what they want to do. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, working in the, the you know, mid-sized enterprise market, except 50 to 200 million, the donations are, I'm sure, pretty large, but you know, still not the Fortune five, for, Fortune fifty size caliber uh, contribution. So, when you're talking to a market or a company, do you find it sometimes, or how do you determine whether or not to donate to you know a large United Way, Feeding America, Salvation Army, where yeah, they're bringing in you know close to five, six billion dollars in donations a year, versus donating to a local uh, nonprofit? Like, how is that? Um, assessment done, whether or not, you know, what's it going to be the biggest impact for the donation, small, you know, uh, local or like an enterprise, you know, caliber? Yeah. yeah so it really does depend on what the company's looking to okay. achieve. And so, you know, not everyone, not everyone has a large budget. You know, one of my, one of my first clients said, Hey, I said, I kind of asked them off the bat. I'm like, Hey, how much do you think you did before I did my financial mm -hmm. analysis? And they're like, I think we get like $10,000. I'm like, okay. I pull in all of that financial. And what I realized is, yes, maybe their sponsorship level was whatever, ten to $50,000. They were giving $250,000 in in-kind donations. Right. And had no idea that they were doing it because various departments were, um, were, were all giving it. So, again, you know, a company can give through sponsorship. Right. They can give through in-kind donations. They can give... Um, through, you know, they might have a really big employee base. And mm -hmm. so like volunteerism okay. is where they can really, you know, give back and, and plug them into various projects, either done in a day type of project or like skills-based volunteering where they're like plugging in, keep people into nonprofits to like help them with accounting or HR or, you know, whatever, you know, leadership mm -hmm. training. So again, based on what the company has, they don't have to have tons of money. Right. We're assessing okay. where, where are they? And then how do we build a plan for them specifically? As to how we're going to, you know, how do we di dictate between a small nonprofit and a big nonprofit? Again, I'm going to go back and it, some companies say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to get into the Miami market. All right. Well, fantastic. I'm going to call, you know, I, I, you know I'm going to call my community relations people down in Miami to be like, okay, who are the, you know, where, what are the best name nonprofits? And sometimes they're the big players, right? you know, you're, you're United Way. And sometimes you know, some of those big groups might not have a really good presence in those markets. Okay. And they might be like, hey, you know what? 
the big players, like the who's who of Miami, they're on these three boards. Okay. Like that's where you want to get in. So again, you're, you're, I'm not saying it. I want to make sure that a company gives um, and we want to get the best bang for their buck right. based on their donation. So it doesn't necessarily matter who they're giving to. It's ultimately based on what they want to accomplish. So if somebody tells me, Hey, well, why don't we give to, you know, one of the big nonprofits or whatever? And I'm going to be like, well, you know, so-and-so wanted to open up, you know, one six fans in the Miami market. They wanted to be in front of developers. Right. And you know where those developers are sitting? They're sitting on this nonprofit, this nonprofit, and this. they're not sitting on some of the bigger players, like the big right. nonprofit boards. So, um, so again, it ultimately goes back to what's the company looking to achieve, and then we'll pair them with the right nonprofit um, to try to get them there. Okay. And then, uh, you know, obviously, so you're basically looking at somewhat as a ticket price, if you will, to some of these boards to get on their, you know, their boards to have access to those members and then to be sponsoring certain, you know, foundations, um, not foundations, but certain events, certain galas being at, you know, present at those events and names. Um, one thing too, that I've seen quite a bit, you know, Jim Moran, obviously is one of the largest uh, donors in this area. For those who don't know, um, you know, uh, founder Toyota, very tied to the Toyota family, massive, massive, massive uh, company. I think you do, you do work with them. Um, one thing that I've seen them do very well is have annual sponsorships, but also do certain things just as scholarships and grants. How do you really advise a company to not only do, you know, one time, not a one time, but, you know, uh, really ingrain themselves within a charity where they are a continuous sponsorship, whether that is a scholarship or a program that, you know, you have like an annual recipient, reciprocant of. Sure. So one of the things that we try to steer companies from is, you know, there are some charities that people, you know, they're, they're what we call event focused versus programmatic focus. So event focus is you're going to a lunch and you're going to a gala and you're going to a breakfast and your logo is placed there. Hey, if your company is all about um, awareness and you just want to make sure that people know who your brand is, who your, you know, CEO is or whatever, then yeah, I might say, you know what, let's get some programmatic stuff and let's get you plugged in into as many um, events as possible so that people know your name, recognize your logo, et cetera. There's other clients where we're, they could care less about their logo being placed in the game. And that's not what, that's not their bread and butter. They're really looking to impact a certain population that a nonprofit is working with. And so we will say, okay, let's skip the gala and let's focus the funding on a more programmatic side of the nonprofit. And so when we're building out our plan, we're, we're looking to very similar to a strategic plan. We're not looking to be like one and done, like here's your check and we're not going to talk to you for 10 years. The whole point of doing a strategic philanthropic plan is to have, you know, what we call funding priorities, these three to five things that you're going to be known for in the community and that you want to be entrenched in that for like a strategic plan, three to five years. Right now, Things change with the company? Sure. Our strategic philanthropic plan has to change as well. So we're saying, hey, we're going to commit to this for a minimum of three mm-hmm. years, possibly five, until the strategic plan changes again, and then we'll assess right. uh, where we are. So when we're giving to these nonprofits, not only are we giving uh, money, but you know, we're trying to we're trying to donate time. So are, are we trying to engage volunteers not only to be part of that nonprofit? Are we trying to get people to serve on the board? Are we trying to get people to serve on committees? Our, you know, we're, we're looking for as many hooks as possible mm-hmm. so that people at the company buy into okay. the nonprofits that we're ultimately supporting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, uh, 
you know, the central messaging there, trying to be part of it. And it, it kind of becomes a partnership. It, it does, it does not kind of, it is a partnership at that point. Um, three to five years and obviously plans change, but also so does the economy. I think we, we're hard to believe. Uh, we're still talking about COVID-19, three, you know, going on year three, but we are still talking about it. So very much a prevalent part of society and the economy. Um, philanthropy donations are a tremendous value and every company should be doing them, but I think maybe not, but I think that oftentimes the economy shrinks up, contracts, maybe one of the first things a company looks at pulling back on. So two questions and one's largely others is one, how did you see COVID-19 impact donations and charities and events? Um, and then two, you know, how volatile would you say some of these donation dollars are to the economy? Yeah. So COVID-19, um, for, so going into 2020, we had had a really good 2019 and 2020 was going to be our year. 2020 was like all of the like cultivation and all of the like dripping that we had done on clients. Like this is going to be the year that it all kind of came together. And so all of a sudden here it comes in March and I'm thinking, you know, you're, you're seeing the stock market kind of tank and there's like a, a, a blip there and we're thinking, you know, my husband's thinking, are we going to have jobs? And I'm thinking, I mean, yeah, community relations is the first thing to go. So I'm probably not going to have a job. And so we kind of braced there for a second. And what we realized in COVID was that companies who give, companies that are ingrained in the community, they stepped up and they continued to give. So this is, you know, a lot of my clients, I'm really fortunate that they have always given. They just hired us to kind of streamline it and, you know, put some boundaries and structure and measurements of success mm-hmm. within their giving, you know, so they weren't going to go from zero to a hundred right. or, you know, from a hundred to zero. zero. <laughs> um, yeah. They weren't going to go the opposite. Right. Way. Right. So a lot of those companies, not only did they continue to give, but because, you know, some of them were still able to operate mm-hmm. and were making decent money right. still through the, you know, through, through the pandemic, they were able to give more. Um, so, so I did, fortunately I did not, um, I lost one client that was uh, about to, to to launch a statewide grant, and they're like, "Messaging wrong. This is not the right. best time to launch the statewide grant." That all of my other clients stayed and continued okay. to uh, continue to give. Um, the other thing that was really interesting is because there was CARES funding, because and there's okay. currently now American Rescue um, funding, cities, municipalities received millions of dollars from the U.S. government to help individuals, to help businesses um, kind of thrive. And so what happened was we got random calls from municipality that said, hey, we need to give away money. Mm -hmm. We hear you help people give away money. We hear hear that you help companies give away money. Can you help us? I'm like, no, no, this isn't like what I do. I help companies give away their money to nonprofits. And it wasn't until, you know, I kind of paralleled with my husband who serves as a husband, therapist, and most importantly, like business coach and mentor. All in one. He's like, tell me, right. all in one. I got really lucky. She says, well, tell me what they're asking you to do that's any different than what you currently do for your clients. He goes, you go in and you, you create the funding priorities, you develop the criteria, you develop the scorecard, you read the application, you give away the money. He's like, what's the difference if you're giving it away right. to a nonprofit versus an individual or a business? And I paused there and I said, you're right. Okay. And again, that's where that hustle gene comes in. Cause you're like, okay, well down the line, am I going to lose a brand because of COVID? I don't know how long COVID's going to go. So I took on two, three projects 
okay. that a little outside my realm, but really the scope is exactly what we do. And so we were instrumental in giving away millions of dollars okay. to um, individuals uh, for their businesses, for the utility programs, for their mortgage, mm-hmm. to help them survive the pandemic. And so because we kind of pushed ourselves right. in, in this direction, we learned a lot. Um, we, we grew, we, you know, we fine tuned our system. So there was a lot of growth to the company that way. Okay. 2020 ironically ended up becoming our best year. And again, we started off the year thinking that we were going to lose every single client. So being nimble enough to adapt mm-hmm. when the going gets tough. Right. And again, some of those clients have now come back and said, Hey, we have all this other funding. Can mm-hmm. you do this? So that has opened up a new, um, line of business for us. Which is awesome. And then all of those other clients that we thought we were going to get in 2020, we're, we're in the midst of pitching them all again and, and have some really good stuff in the pipeline. Which is great. And it sounds like your foundation, uh, despite some some scares early on in the March, April, I think we all were, you know, I remember we running around for whatever reason, just buying up toilet paper. Everybody's in an absolute, you know, nervous, nervous Nancy's all around. Um, your foundation sounded like they stayed pretty well put and uh, you expanded when everybody else is contracting and and, and, uh, and the economy and, and, and uh, incredibly important, you know, as a business person, entrepreneur, just as a person to get, comfortable being uncomfortable you know you 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 do one thing you're not good at or you're un, not, not you're not good at but one thing you're you've never done and now you can do it and now you can add continue to add a repertoire you have a down service where you could potentially go market yourself to municipalities when they're trying to do stuff like that um when there is disaster reliefs coming in um that kind of answered the second question too so you know when these companies are donating those donations are probably going to stay pretty uh consistent regardless of the economy would you say that um so again it just depends it depends on how ingrained giving back is to that company you're it, you know i always tell people you know somebody will say well why don't you go after this company and i'm like i go to tons of community events i go to tons of nonprofit events that that company is not involved if i have to convince a ceo right. as to why they should give the minute that there's a blip on the radar, is there something they're like, no, 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 we're out, we're out. Right. So my target market, again, these small and medium-sized companies who give, I'm just there to rein in their giving, put strategy behind it so that they're not hemorrhaging money and really aligning it with their business goals and objectives. So again, that's not to say that there aren't years where things maybe dip a little bit, but for the most part, giving back um, employee volunteerism, doing good mm-hmm. is really part of that company's DNA. Right. And so they really do try to stay true to that. And then, you know, structuring, you know, restructuring rather than encouragement, right? You're not trying to convince money to donate money. You're trying to help them do it in a better way. Um, what is some of your like marketing strategies? Is it is it word of mouth where you have, you know, you somehow end up at a dinner and you're talking to the next C, you know, next to CEO? Um, are you doing direct marketing? Like what what is, how are you growing your own brand? Yeah. So uh, a lot of it, we've got all, it's not all, probably all of our um one of our clients through word of mouth. And one of the ways that, you know, we do this is because one, you know, you take on a certain client um, that has a certain reputation in the community. Someone calls them up and says, Hey, I see you're doing community relations. I see you're out and about. I want to hire somebody. And so, and those, that company says, don't hire somebody. Call Kelly's company and they'll do it right. for you, you know? And so that's really how I've been able to get a lot of those, um, a lot of those referrals. And then I've become really good friends community relations okay. professionals at some of these companies, right? And so and a lot of times those people will get phone calls right. and they'll say, Hey, um, you know, company ABC is looking to, you know, to hire somebody and they'll be like, don't waste your time. 
hire, you know, right. hire Kelly's company. So a lot of my community relations friends have referred me business okay. because again, they're in that space. Mm -hmm. And if they're getting a phone call, be like, Hey, we're looking to hire somebody to do in-house, you know, stuff, then they can have the conversation to say, okay. well, you might want to consider this, um, this, this instead. Right. And then for those companies that are, are in that or smaller market, maybe they're trying to get to that point of donations. It's not, you know, obviously if we all know the statistics of small businesses who fail and who make it for those small businesses who do make it now they're, you know, they're fit 40, 50 employees are doing 10, 15, 20 million in revenue. Now they're no longer just worried about survival, but actually establishing themselves in the marketplace, becoming a leader in that marketplace. You know, what is recommendations for companies who is for the first time really looking to have a you know, philanthropy foot, uh, footprint in the market, looking to donate, um, whether that is, you know, cash or time. Yeah. So the best advice, um, that I've, again, I've had it with a few corporate relate, uh, professionals is start small, then grow. Okay. So if you are kind of the first time, you know, you don't want to write a $50,000 check because you don't know how it's going to go and you don't know what that relationship's going to look like with that nonprofit. So, you know, maybe you write a smaller check for the first one, two, three years. And then all of a sudden you're ingrained in that nonprofit. You're the CEOs on the board. So and those involved in the city, you have programmatic stuff. And all of a sudden you're seeing uh, the return. You're seeing value um, in whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Right. And then you can say, okay, now I'm a little bit more comfortable giving upping that check to, you know, if it was 5,000, maybe it's 10,000 and, and so forth. And so going from small to big is always, you know, the best model. And you have to kind of look at a company and see like, what is it that, that they do well, you know? Okay. Um, so again, it's not always about cash. Some people are like, well, I don't have a hundred thousand dollars to get right. no problem. You might have a really big employee base and you know, we can do a lot of trainings when it comes to disaster relief, mm -hmm. get those people and deploy them out into the communities to serve them. Hey, you're a logistics company, you know, uh, FedEx and UPS are like one of their biggest give back mm -hmm. is that they say, we know logistics, okay. we know delivery. So when all of a sudden there's a hurricane, when there's a tornado, when COVID vaccines need to be dispersed throughout the country ASAP, mm -hmm. the government didn't, just, you know, didn't do that. They called UPS, they called FedEx, they called these people that do this well mm -hmm. and said, hey, do what you do, but give back in this component. And so those are, you know, you have to know what you as a company do well and then tap, tap into that resource to ultimately get the dirt. It doesn't just right. have to be about um it doesn't have to just always be about money. It can be about your employees. It can be about, you know, the product that you're, you know, working on. It could be the service, et cetera. Yeah, I think we saw a lot of companies do that um, during the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it is, you know, I know a lot of companies who they make T-shirts, they make, you know, graphic T-shirts and, and then they pivoted and they were making um, masks. Uh, companies who uh, have a friend who his company, all they do is uh, they make uh widgets and parts and then all of a sudden during the pandemic they were making um stuff to open doors where you're not touching the door directly so just kind of pivoting through that process um so as you go a little larger and uh you have companies then that are competing for market share if you will in these philanthropies you know what is the uh the process of uh helping companies remain kind of the top seed the platinum donor um at some of these philanthropies so, you know, the way that we're able to help companies stay as like a, you know, prominent within the nonprofit is, you know, a company has to do what they say that they're going to do ultimately, right? 
Um, and so, yes, most parks, unfortunately, it's a pay-to-play type of organization. You know, like, if you give more money, you get, you know, the, the spot that you want or you get the opportunity that you want. Um, however, I always say there are going to be hiccups in a company. Not, nothing perfect, nothing's linear. So you're going to have, you know, a change in CEO. You're going to have a change in marketing. Whoever's running the department, um, whoever's running the the, the the opportunity, um, there's a there's a blip on the radar, and all of a sudden, you know, you might not be the presenting sponsor you've been trying to get to it for a thousand years, and then all of a sudden, there's your opening. And so, if you've kept a good relationship with that nonprofit, you've continued to stay involved. There's board involvement, board engagement, there's volunteers um, in them. I think you have open lines of communication, and you say, "Hey, look, this is what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. If you do a similar type of event, or you do, or this opportunity." Um, opens up in the future, like come to us first. We want, you know, we want a, a crack at it. So I just say, you know, staying involved, um, you know, continuing to do like what you say you're going to do, and then just have open lines of communication with that nonprofit to say, like, hey, look, when the opportunity arises, this is what we're looking for. This is how we're looking to expand our partnership with you and our giving. Um, and when the timing comes, you step in and you do it. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people want to talk about uh, right place, right time. I think that the way that you are in the right place at the right time is to want to communicate what place it is that you want to be, what you consider the right place. So people around kind of know like what are the buzz, buzzwords to pull you into. But also, too, is, uh, not only as an organization, but as an individual, to have that willingness to be selectively everywhere, anywhere, but you know, to be out there. You don't get in the right place, right time without not being willing to put yourself in certain situations. Um, yeah, and let me just piggyback that and say, you know, you might not be the presenting sponsor of an event that you want to be at, or you want to be the, you know, you're, you have this opportunity and you didn't get it. You know, somebody paid more. You can go to the not, that nonprofit and be like, look, I'm looking to do X. I, I can give you this amount of money. Um, what else is there that we can kind of highlight us in, a, in another capacity? So in American Heart Association, we had the, what we called our cause sponsor. Like this was the, the big kahuna that paid $125,000 and they right. branded themselves throughout the year um, with us. And then we would go to an actual heart walk event and we would have a presenting sponsor. So it would say, you know, the um, whatever company, Heart Association presented by such and such. So you can go to these nonprofits and say, look, a nonprofit is ultimately a business that's not keeping the profits, right? They're, they're in the business to stay alive. And so when someone's coming you know, with a check to be able to, to give to them, they're going to try to want to make it work in whatever possible and recognize you as a company in, in a way that fits your company yeah. culture, your company brand, et cetera. So I wouldn't be afraid to ask and say, hey, I can't, I'm not the presenting sponsor, but what else can we do to really right. highlight this if you want, you know, if you want these dollars? Yeah, no, and I think that is just kind of going back to making people aware of your intentions, letting them know what you're trying to do and, and not, not being afraid to ask. Um, a lot of, a lot of good content. I, you know, to be honest, before really speaking with you, I'd not realize how strategic some of the donations are for these companies, these organizations, and also how to, you know, really get a return on those. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of great content my listen, listeners are going to gain from, um, to your earlier point, you know, saw an issue within the, the corporate world and made a jump and made something happen, found a solution. Oftentimes there's, there's not a solution to the issue we can, uh, see, but, but finding it, um, let's kind of just wrap it up. I think, uh, a lot of people could benefit from what you're doing. Where can people go to, uh, connect with Kelly, connect with strategic philanthropy, 
you know, how can people, people get in touch and potentially leverage, you know, your, your solution, your, um, value to their own organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, we have a website. Uh, it used to be strategicphilanthropyinc.com. That has a thousand of spellings in it. So we have shortened it up to strapphil.com. So S-T-R-A-T-P-H-I-L, strapphil.com. Um, you can contact us there. All of my personal contact, uh, all of my personal contact is there. So okay. um, emails the way for you or text messaging the way for you. You can follow us there or reach out. And um, we're obviously on Facebook and all of those um, platforms as well. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, definitely reach out to Kelly. I think there's a tremendous amount of value there. Uh, if you're a donation, if you're, excuse me, if you're a company making donations, um, if your company that's in that space, get strategic about it, make sure you're doing it, getting the ROI for your dollars and getting that market share, the you know, space recognition through it. Um, Kelly, appreciate you joining today. It's great speaking with you. Great learning more about yourself, your business and uh, hope. Thanks those, for the opportunity. Yeah. Hope, hope my listeners, uh, you know, feel the same way. So I appreciate it. And, uh, with that, we'll sign off. Awesome. Thanks. Wow. What a great conversation. It was great to have Kelly on the show. You know, candidly, before speaking with Kelly, I personally was unaware in the dark with the, uh, knowing how much it takes to align a corporate donation to maximize that, to align it with the corporation itself and to help them use those donation dollars, those contributions to gain market share, to break into a market to enhance their brand's perception and the actual thought process and strategy it takes for a corporation to do that. Uh, companies in that 50 to $200 million uh, revenue range at Kelly serves may not have the capability to hire someone internally. They may not need to. So a tremendous value that she's providing to the market and then on her own self, what she's done personally, you know, having uh, recognized an issue early on in her career, something that she did not want to be part of, did not want to be, you know, uh, micromanaged and told when to clock in and clock out, but rather have the freedom, the flexibility that she wanted in her career and to allow her to be the mother that she is. Uh, I think that was an awesome uh, lesson that we all can pick up on is if you see an issue and there's not a, uh, a solution, don't be afraid to create the solution yourself. Uh, there are problems that can be solved internally that you can take care of. And if you see something you don't like, be the change you want to see. Uh, creating her own company, going far and continuing to adapt, even as recent as past years in COVID-19, creating a new program for municipalities, um, leveraging that and uh, taking lead on something that she was unfamiliar with, but taking it on with a you know full stride ahead. Um, awesome conversation. Hope you got a lot of value out of that. I know I did. And uh, keep tuning in. Keep it. Keep listening. We got some really cool, really large uh, guests coming up in future shows. Excited to bring that content to you. Uh, in the meantime, like, subscribe, share with a friend. Appreciate you as we continue to grow this platform and this message. Episode two of Many to Come, The Lessons of Leaders. I am your host, Jake Allen. Thank you for listening in. Crush your day and keep it moving. 